Welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lewis. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. After uh, enduring, I think, 12 consecutive weeks in my company, Todd finally decided he needed to, to take a break. So good on him. Um, in his absence, we've asked a friend of the podcast, Thomas Mills, to join me as co-host this week. Thomas is a climate advocate and engineer who spent his career working in renewable energy, from designing massive wind farms to small rooftop solar projects for businesses who are looking to go green. He's uh, joining us from his home in Tasmania, which I'm told is Australia's cultural mecca. Welcome, Thomas. Thanks, Jason. Uh, Happy to be here. So as we've called out in some of our recent episodes, our listener base is growing, but our social media following is still fairly sad. So you get a moment, follow us at Climate Optimist Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. This week, we'll be looking into the promise of renewable natural gas and its potential to offset conventional natural gas in electricity generation, transportation, and related uses. I don't know about you, Mills, but um, sort of made me think about Back to the Future and that old DeLorean that Doc runs on garbage. I don't know if I'm dating myself with the the reference, but um, but yeah, I thought this is perfect. We're actually using garbage now for fuel. Yeah, look, I'm sure a few of our, our listeners can join the dots on that one. Well, fingers crossed. So before we dig into today's topic, Thomas, I know you had some hopeful news for our listeners. Thanks, Lewis. As we're recording this, the uh, UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties, also known as COP26, is preparing to kick off in Glasgow. And this is a huge moment for climate change action. The the goals of this uh, conference is to primarily set forth some firm targets for 2030 so that we can, as as a globe, progress towards a zero carbon 2050 date. And in the process of this, there is the intent also to find a way to phase out coal sooner than later, accelerate the transition to electric vehicles, and provide finance for developing nations so that they can bypass the CO2 intensive phase as they develop and and, uh, move forward in the world. What What are you expecting to see from Australia out of this? I would have liked to have seen more, but at least our government is now heading to COP26 with a net zero 2050 position. However, like always with uh, the Australian government, there'll be plenty of caveats around that. <laughs> and my fear is that they'll use offsets, be it both within Australia and internationally, to continue to justify the extraction of coal from one of Australia's biggest export earners. How about the US, Jason? Yeah, I, similarly, I know President Biden's going to Glasgow with a target of you know net zero by 2050 and aggressive targets around reduction of emissions in our power sector by 2030. As folks who are paying close attention probably already know, unfortunately, Congress wasn't able to get the legislation across the finish line for him in advance, thanks mostly to two holdout senators uh, who've decided that haggling over different tax reform and climate provisions is more important than, than showing results. But hopefully we're able to get that across the finish line soon and move forward with, with Biden's climate plan. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how democracy works sometimes. The fact that here we have like two players in the game basically grinding to a halt the entire agenda uh, for the administration, which is uh, a little disappointing, but it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, I guess democracy takes patience, that's for sure. And I, I don't always have enough of those to, to go around. Our guest today to help educate us on renewable natural gas 
explain what it is and its benefits is Johannes Escudero. Johannes serves as the CEO of the Coalition for Renewable Natural Gas that he helped found back in 2011. Johannes is a, a passionate sustainability advocate and entrepreneur. He's also served as an adjunct professor for Hope International University, as well as legislative director for the California State Assembly. Johannes, welcome to Climate Optimus. Thank you, Jason. Again, it's an honor to be with you, my friend. Look forward to our conversation today. Yeah, so with all our guests, we usually start out with the same question, which is when you think about efforts to address climate change, you know, what what gives you hope? I'm a hope-filled person. Uh, I'm a person of strong faith. And I just believe that if there's anything to be concerned about in the world around us, and there certainly is, there always has been, there always will be, invariably human beings are part of that problem. And the hope lies in, I think, viewing those challenges as opportunities and recognizing that if truly we as people are part of the problem, then we too can be part of the solution. And I think that the more conscious we are and aware of the impact that we have on the environment around us, the better stewards we can be with the resources that we have. I like that take, you know, part of the problem, part of the solution. That's great. So let's start off with, I guess, a, a really basic question for listeners who, who don't know or have never heard of this thing called renewable natural gas. What, what is renewable natural gas? What is renewable natural gas? How is it different from conventional or fossil natural gas? It's a question we love answering because it's so plentiful and abundant and around us, and we are producing it uh, whether we know it or not. So renewable <laughs> natural gas is a product gas that is created as methane is, is captured and converted to renewable source of fuel, heat, and power to fuel, heat, power, our cars, our homes, and our businesses. So essentially as organic waste or organic materials decompose naturally, uh, methane is created. And where our industry is not able to step in and capture that methane, it escapes fugitively into the atmosphere, uh, where methane we know is a short-lived climate pollutant. It's at least 80 times more potent than carbon as a greenhouse gas. And the right. impacts to the environment are significant. And so, again, we're just energized by the incredible sustainable work that our industry does, capturing that methane, converting it to a productive everyday uh, form of renewable energy for fuel, heat, and power. So as an example, I mean, it could be garbage dump, you know, where yeah. waste is decomposing, could be, you know, feedlot, you know, where you've got cattle, dairy, et cetera. The, right. The largest stationary feedstocks that most people recognize are landfills, organic food waste, like the remnant banana that I'm holding that is being diverted away from landfills, either to digesters or compost facilities, large wastewater treatment plants, livestock, agriculture, dairy operations, and so forth. Anywhere where there's organic waste, uh, that organic waste gets moved or deposited somewhere. You know, and this is an interesting visual that might help your audience understand really the origin, the genesis, and where RNG comes from. For most of us, who are accustomed to pushing a green waste recycling or trash bin out to the curb once a week. And then one of our members waste management or public services will come pick up that waste and take it off our hands. Right. Uh, and for most of us, the waste that we produce is then out of sight 
And because it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Sure. When in reality, the life cycle we're talking about is just beginning. And that life cycle is wherever that waste is deposited, it's going to decompose naturally and produce methane. And that methane, if it's not captured and dealt with, it's going to escape into the atmosphere. So as a country, we've had to reconcile with the waste problem we've created for ourselves. For years, we've exported that waste. And now countries like China are saying, no more, we're not taking it. So we really have to reckon, what are we going to do with the waste we're producing? And I think our industry represents an incredible value proposition to address that problem. Yeah, certainly, certainly important timing given where we are with the need to, you know, to cut methane and, and reduce our fossil fuel consumption. So you've sort of answered this in a way already, but when we talk about renewable natural gas, how does it, you know, effectively impact greenhouse gas emissions? Greenhouse gas emissions obviously contribute to climate change concerns about global warming. And I think when you look at the amount of food waste that we create as a society, for example, north of 140 million tons per year, just in America, we have a waste problem. And we have companies like those I've already mentioned, whose core business is to uh, collect and to sort and manage and, and to recycle. And they're doing a valiant job of that. But at some point, the, resp the responsibility lies with you and I as human beings as producers of that waste. And I think we have a tremendous opportunity in front of us to identify, wow, if methane is resulting from the waste we're producing, then we as society should share in the cost to capture and convert that harmful methane emission, one, to mitigate the environmental impacts, but to create from that methane as a valuable resource, a renewable source of fuel heat and power for our vehicles, for our homes and our businesses. So it's an exciting proposition. Yeah. And I guess, you know, many folks have probably jumped to sort of the next question of, well, what's what's the resource potential, right? If <clears throat> If renewable natural gas has this ability to offset, you know, usage of traditional fossil fuel natural gas, how much of it you know, is out there, how much of our, you know, existing usage, whether at home at the stove or in, you know, in a natural gas power plant can be offset with this resource. Absolutely. And I think it's important for the audience to understand that it's expected that solid waste is expected to increase 70% from today's levels by 2050. Again, we have a waste problem as a society. We produce an inordinate amount of waste. So what we do with that waste is an imperative that we have to address. And in terms of, I mentioned 140 million tons per year just of food waste, right? That's, that's just food waste. In terms of supply, um, I think it might be helpful to provide a little bit of historical context in the, in the development landscape. One project was built on average per year over a three-decade span between 1982 and our founding in 2011. There was no policy platform. There was no advocacy voice, so we created that in 2011. By 2015, just four years into our existence, we were able to quadruple that annual project development average over 30 years from one to four in just four years. And we were proud of that. We had 47 operating projects by our end-of-year conference 2015. And so we challenged the industry again. We said, look, we can do more. We have to do more. And we said, we want to see the industry double the number of projects in the next 10 years. We want to see 100 projects from 47 by the year 2025. This was in 2015. 
And that was met with some skepticism, some healthy skepticism, no doubt. Uh, but in any event, fast forward, and we actually achieved our 2025 objective five and a half years early. That's fantastic. And in July 2019, we brought our 100th RNG production facility online. So in December of 2019, at our end of year conference, we again challenged our industry and we said, look, not only can we, we do more, we must do more. And there's so much work to be done. It's going to take all of us. And we identified the more than 43,000 aggregated organic waste sites that exist today across the United States and Canada. And we said, we want to capture and control the methane that's produced from all 43,000 sites by the year 2050. So we've been diligent at work with our membership, identifying preliminary benchmarks for 2025, for 2030, and 2040, so that we ultimately achieve that benchmark, hopefully again, in advance of our target year 2050. From those feedstocks, Jason, there's sufficient RNG that could be developed just from the organic waste we've identified today to replace 13% of total current gas demand. Wow. Uh, to put it another way, that's enough RNG to supply and decarbonize 100% of current commercial gas demand nationwide, or enough RNG to supply 75% of current residential demand for gas in North America and the United States, I'm sorry, not North America. So it's not an insignificant amount, right? No, and when you you know look obviously at the fact that we're trying to transition away from fossil fuels and that while natural gas is as an industry is continuing to grow on the power side, you know, you're going to see a point at which it's hopefully waning and we're using it more in applications to really, you know, for balancing purposes rather than baseload, you know, in theory at a certain point. And I don't know if you guys have, have goals around that, but you know, at what, at what point can, you know, can RNG really become our source of, of natural gas? And I guess one sort of just the engineering me technical question is, are there any limits in terms of replacing, you know, we'll call it the the dinosaur natural gas that, that we use today? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things we're trying to do as we uh, ad, advocate and educate, and that's to sort of uh, reinstate the curb appeal that's missing with renewable natural gas. And I think it's ironic for the very reason we talked about, which is we're pushing waste bins out to the curb once a week, but it, it's waste and arguably lacks some of the curb appeal that other renewable energy sources have. And so I think one of the things that makes it so appealing is the fact that it's immediately available and deployable today and can be interconnected with and transported through our existing pipeline gas infrastructure, which provides a dual benefit. One, as utilities are transporting renewable natural gas on their system, the RNG effectively is decarbonizing our gas system today and allows utilities to then deliver a renewable commodity to their end-use customers in the residential, commercial, and industrial sectors. So again, there is uh, no change necessary, no upgrading required, no replacement of systems. Renewable natural gas is immediately interchangeable with conventional natural gas today in all end-use applications. So there are no limitations in that regard. Right. Well, and, you know, it's it's obviously exciting to hear you talk about, you know, the ambitious targets you have in terms of leveraging the full potential of the resource that exists out there, the 40-some thousand opportunities, if you will. You know, looking forward, are there sort of basic mechanisms that you might be able to describe for our listeners in terms of, 
the things that help encourage it, right? Is it a, you know, people who might be familiar with like a renewable energy standard, is it saying, hey, we, you know, we need to include a certain percentage of renewable natural gas in, you know, the state's portfolio, or is it, you know, things like pricing carbon? Well, you mentioned one of them, Jason, a renewable gas standard. It's an absolute priority for us uh, and our preferred approach. Uh, as I mentioned, we work with stakeholders and sometimes the appetite or the timing isn't right to support a specific policy. So we're prepared to pivot, but uh, renewable natural gas procurement requirements for utilities, um, which we discussed previously, would help to decarbonize not only their system, but enable them um, to to transport and deliver renewable natural gas to their, their rate base. Um, similarly, renewable portfolio standards, it's protecting those. It's making sure that renewable natural gas still qualifies as a source of baseload fuel that can be combusted to generate renewable electricity under those various RPS programs. Um, low carbon or clean fuel standard programs like we've seen succeed in California, like we've more recently passed in Oregon several years ago and this, this year in Washington state. Um, these go a long way towards requiring um, a reduction of the carbon intensity of the fuels that we use to drive our, our vehicles, whether it's light duty, medium, heavy duty uh, segments of the transportation space. So I'm wondering, you know, as we kind of look forward and in, in this scaling that needs to take place for RNG, what are, you know, kind of the costs associated with RNG compared to, say, conventional natural gas and what things could help, you know, bring RNG to more, you know, cost parity in the future? Yeah. Look, I think there's almost always a premium associated anytime we're producing renewable energy. And the same is true of renewable natural gas. And there's a cost differential between conventional natural gas, which Henry Marie had pricing is probably between $250 and $3 today. I haven't checked. Um, and the cost to develop renewable natural gas on a per MMBT or million British thermal unit basis, depending on the feedstock, um, the location of that feedstock, the distance to interconnect that project with the nearest utility pipeline, and then the distance that that pipeline has to transport the product gas to the end use customer, all factors into a cost of somewhere between seven and say $25 per MMBTU. So significantly more than it costs to produce conventional natural gas, but ultimately the cost of RNG isn't and shouldn't strictly be measured in dollars and cents only. I would ask, what is the price and the value of reducing society's waste stream, right? Um, but nonetheless, we realize that businesses are forced uh, not just with an altruistic equation, but right. a real financial decision. And and how do they bridge that gap? And that's where a lot of the federal and state programs that we've helped promulgate come into play. Um, you know, in terms of the cost of renewable natural gas when delivered to customers, it's often sold at or below conventional gas prices because the env environmental attributes that are incentivized under these programs are then separated and sold to parties who have a regulatory obligation or else on a voluntary basis have their own sustainability commitments to retire such attributes. In other words, when you're you know looking at it just as you know, the cost of the fuel, you know, obviously there's this delta, but in taking into account, you know, the environmental benefit, that delta disappears, that all of a sudden you do have more right. kind of parity between the, the two resources. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and the other great thing is that RNG production facilities don't require a new gas pipeline network. They just need access to connect with existing infrastructure that's already available. Um, 
And, and, you know, you may have members of your audience that ask, well, how do I get renewable natural gas to my home or business? And, and we would encourage your audience to contact their local energy provider to find out if, if they offer renewable natural gas as an option today. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I can imagine, you know, in terms of driving utilities who might be on the fence about offering RNG, hearing from their, their rate base is a great way to encourage them to, to make that next step. It's it's true at the local level. It's also true in state and federal government and related politics as well. And I think to the extent you believe in the role that converting society's waste streams to renewable energy sources is part of a decarbonization strategy, then encourage your, your local, state, and federal elected uh, representatives to support pro-RNG policies, like the renewable fuel standard at the federal level like low carbon fuel standards at the state level. Yeah, I mean, I I suppose I started this, you know, somewhat maybe sold already because of some of the research I've done, but um, I think you've definitely done a good job of making me a convert. Thank you. Is there a source that you would recommend if people were trying to get, you know, get smart on those those policies and looking for those those talking points that they would go? I mean, we come into your website. Yes. Where, where would people go to to find those talking points so that they can they can feel confident enough to engage their their legislators. Absolutely. We have a treasure trove of publicly accessible and available information on our website, Jason, and your audience can go to RNG, like renewable natural gas, rngcoalition.com and certainly peruse the entire site, but be sure to click on the education menu at the top of your browser and you can spend as little or as much time as you'd like delving into all things renewable natural gas. You mentioned the EPA has, you know, recognizing or recognizes the, you know, the environmental value of, of RNG. You know, is that a is that a site where we could send people as well? Yep. EPA, USDA, USDOE, uh, any of these federal agencies all have respective pages and sections devoted to the role of renewable natural gas. So absolutely. And and a lot of the information on our website will link to those federal, state, or provincial government sites as well. Well, Johannes, I want to thank you for making the time to come on to Climate Optimus and share your knowledge on RNG with us. Um, I've certainly learned some new things. And yeah, I you know look forward to sort of tracking the RNG, you know, I don't call it revolution, RNG transition. So yeah, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, Look forward to hearing how things turn out. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us, Jason. Uh, look forward to continuing our conversation offline, perhaps online again in future podcasts and getting to know you and your audience a little bit better and maybe even achieving some important work together. Sounds good. Thank you. Awesome. So, Thomas, what did you uh, what did you think of Johannes's interview? Well, Jason, look, uh, I think it definitely sounds like it's an opportunity with a promising future. It still appears to be early days in terms of production volumes compared to you know, conventionally sourced gases. So I, I think that's why it's important that when we do make these, you know, manufacture these gases or extract these gases, we need to make sure that we continue to use it wisely. And we shouldn't just say, right, all the processes that we do today with natural gas extracted from fossil gas, we're going to do in the future with renewable gas. And we should still be thinking hard about how do we transition our houses off 
natural gas in general and move them towards using heat pumps and so forth for these lower temperature heating applications. How about you, Jason? I agree. And I think it's it's a good point that because this is a valuable resource that we ought to be using it wisely. You know, 13% is a lot, but it's clearly not going to come close to offsetting our current natural gas consumption. And so looking at where the applications, we really need it. So things like today where we have battery energy densities are still fairly low and therefore it makes it awkward to try to, let's say, have a, an electric cargo ship or an electric jet plane, that renewable natural gas makes sense in those sort of applications. Similarly, when we're thinking about the power sector, we need to be focused on phasing out natural gas as quickly as we can, but acknowledging that we're still going to need a certain amount of it to help balance load when you know the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And so, again, that's an application where it's going to be incredibly valuable. But let's not waste it, to your point, on just base, base load generation like we are with natural gas today. Yeah, and I think that segues well into discussing rights law and how that applies in this situation. Um, rights law was developed in the late 1930s by Theodore Wright, and it's essentially the realization that a doubling in production of manufacturing or whatever it may be um, typically reduces the cost of production by about 15% or so. And I think we're going to see that with natural gas. As they continue to ramp their production, they'll find ways of reducing their cost because they are still quite expensive when compared to conventionally extracted gas. Yeah, fingers crossed there, you know, and hopefully the <clears throat> the coalition will be successful in really starting to get these the number of projects to ramp quickly. So with all this, as always, the question becomes, well, what can we do? So I think the first opportunity is while you know Thomas talked about rightfully so, we should be looking at ways to continue to electrify our our homes. They're going to continue to be places where it makes sense to use natural gas, and in those in those areas within the home, it makes sense if we can be using renewable natural gas. So, I would encourage folks to reach out to your local utility if you have natural gas in your home and asking if they supply net renewable natural gas. And and if they don't, at a minimum, it helps act as a as a forcing function to encourage your utility to carry renewable natural gas. The second opportunity, and in my mind, the more impactful is to engage our legislators. And I would encourage folks to start with their their senators and, and calling on them to support what would be called a renewable natural gas standard, similar to the renewable energy standards, where we have utilities that have been mandated to supply a certain amount of their power from, from wind and solar. And as always, we'll have talking points on our website, click on the take action button under the title of our current episode. That'll take you to the episode page where we'll include those tips so that you feel confident engaging your legislators. But I think it's important that they hear from us on this topic because it is a large potential resource. And the quicker we can get a standard in place, the more it's going to accelerate the transition to to RNG and help us capture those 40-some thousand potential opportunities that Johannes talked about. So I think that's a wrap for this week. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimists is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.